This morning we are in Nehemiah chapter 2. We started the book of Nehemiah last week together and we are looking this morning starting in chapter 2 verse 9. We'll go through the end of chapter 3. And when we look at this passage there are really several things that we could think about. We could think about gender roles. Uh, we'll read, uh, well, we may not read it, but in chapter 3, verse 12, we see Shalom's daughters help to rebuild the wall. And so that in itself shows us that, hey, women can be in construction work, right? Even as the Bible calls men and women equal and yet gives them distinct roles, we see that this helps us avoid maybe cultural stereotypes. You could look at this passage and think about how to motivate people or how to be a godly leader. Nehemiah is doing that. He's motivating the people. He's getting a plan together. He models what to do. He prays. You could think about the importance of working together to get large tasks done as they rebuild this wall. You could look at this passage and think about what kind of advice it might have for politics. People seem to be responsible for working on parts of the wall close to them. Uh, there's just the fact that people are building a wall that probably brings certain things to our mind as we think about the wall that is in the political realm right now with should we build it, should we not, on the border with Mexico. You could look at this and there's a phrase in chapter 3, verse 5. It says the, the nobles would not stoop to do the work. So imagine that. People in authority not willing to serve in doing something. It's not unique to us. It's not unique to any culture. But we see those things here. You could move off of politics. You could look at the passage and see what a call to ministry might look like. Nehemiah has this uh, God-given desire to come and do this. And yet also the people confirm this. It's not just him wanting to do it, but the people affirm this and also join together in this work. And then, I mean, those are just a few. You could probably find other things in this passage to gain wisdom from and to look at. But even as we think about those things, those topics aren't necessarily wrong to learn from this passage. We read in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10 that the things written in the Old Testament happened to them as an example and they were written down for our instruction. And so it's not wrong to look at the Old Testament and get examples or learn what it looks like to do right and not do wrong. But if you just focused on those kinds of observations, we would really miss the main thing going on in this passage. And the main thing really has to do with the wall. Specifically, why are they building the wall? And as we think about that truth, we'll be able to understand more of the importance, not just for them, but for us as well. And so if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to follow along. We are going to read Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll start in verse 9 and read through 3, verse 5. We won't read all of chapter 3 as it gets repetitive as they just go around and build the wall. But you'll get the idea through the first five verses. So starting in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse Nine. The word of the Lord says this. Then I came, this is Nehemiah speaking, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. 
Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat and the Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate and to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, served and servant and Geshem the Arab, heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachar the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Father God, we pray that as we come to this passage that we would see and understand why this wall exists, why they are building it, that would strengthen us and encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the question is, why are they building this wall? This is the main thing going on. This is really what God has put in Nehemiah's heart, why he's come, the first thing that he comes to address, why this wall? And Nehemiah gives us the answer. You might have caught it there as we read chapter 2, verse 17. He tells us, he tells the people, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. And then he gives the reason. He says, that we may no longer suffer derision. That's the reason he gives. This is the reason really in his heart. As he had heard the state of Jerusalem, that's what made him weep and made him want to go there and help with this to rebuild the wall, that they may no longer suffer derision and shame. 
really was, it was an embarrassment to him. And he said, this is an embarrassment. Let us build the wall. And we really have to think about the situation they're in to really understand this. We don't really have walls around our cities. But the wall really was a way that the people were distinct. They were their own nation, and when they were by, captured by many different nations, but really Babylon, and led into captivity, and then they traded hands through the different kings that had conquered, right? They became just one of the many conglomerates of people that had been captured, and they were all mixed together. There was nothing special about them. They were just another ruined city that had been conquered by Babylon. In fact, you could probably say the only thing distinct about them was that they thought they were special and distinct. But here they were, just like anyone else who had been conquered, just as bad off as everyone else. And it wasn't really only causing them shame, but really it brought shame to the name of God as well. Because if you think back about what God had promised to the people of Israel... He had given them promises. We could look at Deuteronomy 7. I'll read part of this. But this is what God reminds the people before they go in to take possession of the land. First in Deuteronomy 7, he tells them to destroy the people and the people in the land, not to make covenants with them, not to intermarry with them. And then in verse 6, God tells them why they're supposed to do this. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You're holy, you're set apart, you're distinct. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying him. This is what God had said to the people in Deuteronomy 7. So here they are, with the walls destroyed, with the enemies seeming to have won and conquered, and the people there seeming to have been forgotten by God. Where is this God who keeps covenant love, who is steadfast, who is faithful? This is the impression we get with the city lying in ruin and the walls being destroyed. It's, it's a shame to them. It's a shame to the name of God who had made these promises to them. So Nehemiah brings this message, and the people respond to the message. They rise up and build. They hear this truth. They hear this hard truth, even though it's a message of shame. Right? Normally, in our culture, we try not to motivate people through shame, and yet here's Nehemiah giving them this message of shame, and they hear it, and they respond, and they rise up and build. This, this warning about their danger and where they're at really motivates them. It's what God uses. And that's really not just true for them. That's true for all the people of God. When the people of God hear a warning, they hear about the danger they're in and the shame they're living in, 
That's what God uses oftentimes to motivate them to, to change, to come back and return to him. If you look at the book of Hebrews, we see this in chapter 10, this great warning about returning to the Lord and not continuing sinning. It says in chapter 10, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, after we receive knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And so, in Hebrews, that warning is used to, to motivate the people, to remind them, don't let your heart be hardened, but return to the Lord. And here we see the same thing from Nehemiah. And it's this, this warning, this strong warning, this shame, this warning of danger that God often uses to get us to take things seriously, to realize the situation we're actually in. Because when we feel that conviction, we shouldn't just brush it off. We shouldn't just think, oh, it's no big deal, right? You can kind of become accustomed to your surroundings. The people have been living in Jerusalem for a little bit of time by the time Nehemiah shows up, right? They were in this state that started to rebuild the temple, but it had been in ruins for a while. And you got to imagine they had just probably kind of gotten used to it. And they had just... This was just how it was, and that's how it is sometimes when we get accustomed to living a certain way, and especially to living in the wrong way, we, we become calloused or hardened to seeing that this is not right. But God uses people to bring that word of truth, even when it's hard truth, into our lives, and we must not turn away from that message. We must respond, return to the Lord, just like we see here, because sin really is shameful. Sin really is putting us in danger eternally. Jesus had to die to deal with this. It is not to be taken lightly. We must return to these warnings. When we see sin in our lives, we must forsake them and turn to the Lord. And this idea of turning is one thing we see in Nehemiah, this turning from sin and turning to God, and really that leads us back to this idea of being the distinct people of God. A passage in Deuteronomy talked about it, how the people were chosen, they were set apart, they were distinct from all the other people, and that distinctness, part of it, maybe the main part, was in how they were supposed to live. And that's really what's going on with the building of this wall. It was a way to make the people distinct again. And we'll see that later in the book as Nehemiah uses the wall really as a way to help protect the Sabbath and obeying the commands of the Lord. But it's about removing their shame and being the set-apart people of God, being distinct again. That's why they're building the wall. And so as we look at this passage and we think, this is what it means. This is why they're building the wall, to be distinct, to be set apart. We then have to think, well, what does this mean for us? Right? What do, what do I get from this? We know these are the facts, but how does this apply to me? And the first thing we need to do is probably to realize that we are the people of God. That seems really straightforward. That's probably not rocket science. But I think it's, it's helpful to not skip over that step sometimes. 
Uh, just this last week, there was an example that came up in my mind of why it's important to, to understand how we are the people of God. Uh, every once in a while, you'll hear a famous celebrity, maybe athlete, maybe a music artist, who will have the or promote the idea of what's called black Hebrew Israelites. And this came up last week, that's why I was thinking about it. Uh, this idea is really sometimes with major athletes, major uh, music artists, but every once in a while you hear it, and that's a specific term. So what this means is uh, black Hebrew Israelite essentially is this idea that most, maybe all black people are descended ethnically from Jacob. They trace their roots back in this system of thought, and therefore they are the ethnic people of God. That's the idea that came up this last week again with someone, and so I was thinking about it. And the thing about this is, uh, maybe you think, well, that's a strange idea. I've never heard of that. Maybe you immediately start to think of things. But the thing when it comes to genealogies and tracing our lineage back is that it's really hard to do. Like, we have genealogies in the Bible, but it's really hard for me to trace my exact heritage back to specific people besides Adam and Noah, right? And so... One, it's really hard for me to prove I am or am not related to someone. So that means it's really hard for me to prove I either am a part of the ethnic people of God or am not. And so the point being, it's really hard to prove that people who say this are right or wrong because well, we don't have the records. But the point is that that's not how we trace the people of God. The Bible really that gets us off track. Paul talks about not getting into arguments about genealogies, I think this is why. Because in the New Testament, the New Testament talks about the people of God in a specific way, and it doesn't do it ethnically. But in Galatians, and in elsewhere, Galatians 3.7 is probably a great example, though. It says this, those of faith, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Right? And so it's Paul, and elsewhere in the New Testament, we see being the people of God, being the true descendants of Abraham, is not about ethnicity, per se, but is about faith. And this is what the passage we read this morning in our scripture in Ephesians 2 talks about. We see that in Ephesians 2. I will read a couple of verses again to remind us. But in Ephesians chapter 2, let's say verses 13 and 14, now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, this is talking about Gentiles, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then you can go down to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, you're a part of the people of God, the family of God, even though you're not ethnic Israel. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And so that was maybe a an interesting path we just took there, but it reminds us, hey, we are the people of God, and maybe gives us one example of why it's important to remember exactly how and why we are the people of 
God. And specifically, you might have noticed even there in that passage in Ephesians that being the people of God means that there's building happening. I think it's interesting there's a similarity in language here, right? In the Old Testament, Nehemiah tells them to build the wall. Well, I think that reminds us of what we're supposed to be doing as an application in the church. It tells us in Ephesians we're supposed to be building something as well. We're not a wall, but we're building the church. We're building each other up because that is how we look more like Jesus and we are distinct. And so that's really the application, I think, that we gain from this. As we read Nehemiah and the people were building this wall to be distinct, we should think we need to be distinct as well. That's the point of the wall, is so that they be distinct and maintain their identity as the people of God. We need to do that too as well as the church. We need to be a distinct people. Not in building physical walls to keep people in and out, but being distinct in our holiness and how we live and maintain that distinction between the church and the world. The church is not supposed to look like the world, but it's different. We have those same things written about us that were written about Israel. We are the chosen people of God, his holy people, a special people we read in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we don't have to go outside of the book of Nehemiah to think about how we're supposed to be distinct. And so that's really where I want to spend maybe the rest of our brief time this morning. Nehemiah gives us four specific ways that we are supposed to be distinct. That's the point of the wall, so we should look at Nehemiah. What else does he say? He says the people are distinct in these ways. I'm really indebted to a pastor named Mark Dever for pointing these out. But he says the people are distinct in these ways in the book of Nehemiah. He says that they have the word of God spoken to them. They're marked out by God's word, right? Uh, Nehemiah references back to Deuteronomy. They received the word of God. That's a special thing. That's a distinct thing that not all people have received throughout history. Only Israel received that in the Old Testament. And only the apostles and the, the, the people of God only received the word of God. That's distinct about the people of God. We see that the people of God also are marked by holiness. We kind of mentioned that as well. But that's one of Nehemiah's main things. After he builds the wall, he makes sure that people are not intermarrying with other people. That they're actually following the commandments. They're actually living a holy life. That's distinct about them. They're not supposed to look like the other nations that they had to come in and destroy. If they did that, they would face the same punishment that they did. And so God teaches them what their worship is supposed to look like, what their morals are supposed to look like, even who they're supposed to marry, right? They're supposed to be different. And really, you could look at the book of Nehemiah and see that a lot of the difficulties they were facing are because they weren't living this holy life. So our holiness, our distinctness is something that God requires because it brings him glory. So the people were distinct. They would, the other nations would look at them and see the glory of God, how he keeps his covenant, how they are his people, and they would be drawn to him. We see that same thing with us as well. We see also in the book of Nehemiah that people were distinct because of the presence of God. Right? The temple is being rebuilt. The temple is where God's presence dwelt. Um, but Nehemiah also prays for the Lord to grant him mercy to be with him, so to speak, as well. We see the presence of God 
showing up in these ways, that's unique to the people of God. Everyone does not have the presence of God with them. And we also see in, this, in the book of Nehemiah that they were distinct because they faced opposition. Now, facing opposition in itself is not something that's unique per se, but it is unique in that they faced opposition because they were committed to following the Lord. It was costly for them to follow this path. So repeatedly and repeatedly we see that the people of God will face opposition for being committed to him. Nehemiah, from the moment he gets there, the second verse after he shows up in verse 10, he's already facing opposition. We'll see in chapter 4 how that escalates and continues really throughout his whole time there. But we see this idea that the people repeatedly face opposition because they follow the Lord. And not insignificant opposition. These are governors of the land who we actually have records of from outside the Bible. That's how important they were. Their names were written down on monuments and things. These are, this is significant opposition they were facing for what they're doing. And so these distinctions we see in Nehemiah, that they're distinct by the word of God, they're distinct because of their holiness, they're distinct because of the presence of God, they're distinct because of the opposition they face because of following God. Those things are not just true of the people of God here, they're true of us as well as the people of God. We are distinct. God says that. We are distinct in this way. If you don't want to be distinct in this way, then you shouldn't be a Christian. Because God says, you will be like this. I make you this way. Being a friend of God means being at enmity with the world. We're still in it, but we're not of it. And so we should embrace these distinctions. We shouldn't shy away from them. We should be the people that people look at and say, oh, they love the word of God. They're a little weird for it, maybe. Maybe that's what they say, I don't know. But we should embrace that. That should be who we are, our identity. We love the word. We are people of the word. That's unique to us. No one else has that. We have the presence of God. We should embrace that. We should not shy away from that and try to be more like the world and doing what the world does to try to attract the world. Our distinctness is what sets us apart and gives glory to God. And so we should embrace that. The more we embrace the world, the more we're drawn away from God and we lose our distinctness. We should embrace all of these things. Embrace that we are a holy people and live that. That holiness is what our life is about. That this is our main call. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so we should do what we can. We should wage war, really, to use the language of Paul, to eliminate sin from our lives. We should look like this. We should embrace this distinctness. And we should embrace the fact that there will be opposition. Not in a weird, enjoying kind of opposition and punishment way, but in understanding that being opposed by the world means that we are following the Lord. That if, if God is on my side, who can be against me? Right? This is our mindset. We embrace this. And we understand that, no one's, uh, that everyone is not going to agree with it or understand it. And that it will bring backlash to us. But the Lord is my shepherd. And I 
follow him down his path, and he led his path to the cross where he suffered and died. We as his followers cannot expect more than our master experienced. And so we embrace this distinctness. We embrace the distinctness of the people of God. That is the message really of Nehemiah in these chapters as he builds the wall. They are distinct people. We are reminded that we must be distinct as well as the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we are thankful for your word. We pray that we will be distinct, that you will remind us more and more of the, the goodness that you have made us this way and that we will embrace it. Lord, that as we see sin in our lives, even as the people saw that they were in shame and in danger, that we would realize that sin leads to shame and danger in our life, and that is not what you've created us to be, that we would confess it and turn to you and return to you, Lord. We pray that we will be encouraged by this word, be strengthened by it, that we would be distinct, because it is costly. And it is hard. It's challenging. We don't like to physically suffer. We don't like to have people think poorly of us. But Lord, may we consider that your opinion of us as the greatest thing that matters. Lord, continue to make us distinct. Continue to make us holy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.